Well, five years from now, you will essentially be the same person you are today, except for the people that you hang around with and the books that you've read. I heard that once. I can't remember where, but it's always kind of stuck with me, and I can't say that it's airtight, that, that it's always absolutely true, but I can say that as every year in my life goes by, and I think back on the ways that I change or that I don't change, I find I personally provide lots of evidence to support that statement. Five years from now, you'll be the same person you are today, except for the people you've been with and the books that you read. It's kind of interesting to consider that when we come to our text this morning. We'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17. Uh, and because when we're there, we are going to see some good practical advice on how to continue growing in a life of faith. And that advice is essentially centered around two things. Around the best people to spend time with and the very best book that you can possibly read. So if you'll, if you'll turn there with me in, uh, to 2 Timothy chapter 3 in your Bibles, please. There have been uh, quite, quite a load of heavy topics as we've been working through in the past weeks and months through 2 Timothy. We've had sermons on suffering and warnings against corruption and dangers in the church. But starting in verse 10 of chapter 3, we get a breath of fresh air as the Apostle Paul turns away from describing some of those wicked, self-loving imposters who, are, who will creep into the church and deceive many and do harm by opposing the truth. Paul turns away from describing those people, and he begins to talk about what makes Timothy different. And the reminders and the advice that Timothy receives here is encouraging to us, and it's useful to us as we hear it today. And as we look at it, we're going to come away with some answers to the question, what makes a servant of God fit or ready for duty? What makes us ready to do what God asks us to do? I'm going to read through all of chapter 3, even though we'll only be focusing on the second half later on, because when we get to verse 10 at the start of our passage this morning, there's a really sharp contrast between what has come before. So 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able, able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth." Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So that was last week, and now we switch into our passage this week. But you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you... 
continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and, from how, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what makes a servant of God fit and equipped to do the work that God has called him or her to? Three things in this passage. Three main verbs that we're going to organize our thoughts around. The first one is follow. Follow the godly examples that have gone before you. Continue in what you have believed. And then the third one is passive because it's something that has to be done to you. Let the word of God do its work in you. Follow, continue, and let God's word work in you. Really practical stuff for us today. First off, follow. Follow the godly examples in your life. Paul writes that Timothy has followed him. And just look at the scope of what that following means. He says, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my sufferings. There are some words that we need to define because they're just tricky words. They're, they're complicated. I don't think that the word follow should be one of them. But then there are some words that require definitions because they've fallen into sort, sort of sad disuse. I think that the word follow falls into that second category of maybe it needs a definition because, it's, because of the way it gets used these days. Uh, Timothy did not follow the Apostle Paul on his Twitter feed, even though that would have been an awesome Twitter feed. That would have been just incredible. Uh, you know, almost got killed again. Uh, hashtag God is faithful. Um, it, it would have been incredible to follow. But, you know, Kyle Eidelman has written this, this good little book entitled Not a Fan. And the whole point of his book is that there is a difference between a casual fan and a dedicated follower. And Jesus, as we encounter him in the Gospels, was always looking for followers for disciples, not for casual fans. Jesus promised forgiveness and freedom from sin and death. He promised a rewarding, exciting life full of doing God's will. But you do not receive those benefits in an email attachment when you subscribe to his Instagram account. Jesus said anyone who wishes to follow me must pick up his cross, deny himself, pick up his cross, and come follow me. It's not really following in the sense that we're talking about right now if there's an unfollow button or an unsubscribe option. You look at the description there beginning in verse 10 and you realize that Paul is looking back on the whole scope of his life and ministry from the moment that Jesus saved him and called him to follow. This is Paul's life. There it is. This is what he has lived for. This is what he has bled for. This is what very soon he knows he is about to die for. To follow godly examples, the ones that are around you, it's going to involve more than just observing them from the sidelines. Following means rolling up your sleeves and getting in there and joining them. Paul's about to die. He won't be around forever. He won't be there for the next generation of Timothys to learn from. When they were together, Timothy had to get in there and learn by practice to do what Paul did because there was a limited time on that opportunity. The same thing is true in our generation. 
get in there and serve under someone that you want to look like, that you want to learn from before it's too late, because it will not be long before the next generation is going to be looking to you. If you just sit back and let your leaders do all the work, what will you do when they are gone? This is one of the best parts about being a disciple, though, about being a learner and getting in there and learning from someone who has a skill that you want to pick up. By, by learning and by following after them, you have already begun doing. By following, you've already begun on the path. It's like an apprenticeship where you're actively learning and using the skills that you're going to put to use on your own later. Paul is able to turn from his description of those worthless men in verses 1 to 9, corrupted in mind and opposed to the truth, he's able to say at the start of verse 10, but not you, Timothy. But you, don't worry, are not like them. I already know that. And how does Paul know? Because Timothy has been following after the pattern of Paul's life. Timothy has already shown that he's not on the path that those other ones are on. He's on a different trajectory, uh, with a different beginning and, and a different ending. Just look with me at verses 12 and 13. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue. And we'll get to the continue part in just a little bit. But first, we want to notice that Timothy is not the only one who is going to be doing some continuing. The other men that we talked about last week, the ones opposed to the truth, they haven't actually arrived where they're getting yet. You think they're bad now? Just wait until they're done. The text says they're going to keep on going and making progress in what is bad, going from bad to worse as they keep on going down their path, deceiving and being deceived. Timothy's path is different. Timothy's path might involve suffering. In fact, it will involve suffering. But thankfully, by following Paul, he's been prepared for that too. Because Paul has suffered for the faith. And it's through that suffering that we see another great aspect of of what you gain when you follow a, a Christian, a spiritual mentor closely. Godly mentors don't only teach through their competence. Godly mentors also teach as they model dependence on God. Don't just watch your teacher to learn what they can do. Watch them also to observe what God can do through them. Paul reminds Timothy about his sufferings at Antioch, Iconium, and at Lystra. Paul suffered things in lots of places. He could have listed almost any town in, uh, in the ancient Roman Empire where Paul suffered, but he probably chose those places because those would have been early experiences in Timothy's own journeys alongside him. You would have had a fresh-faced, young, youthful Timothy observing these sufferings of his mentor right out of the gate, would have left a mark. The end of verse 11 gives Timothy two things to think about regarding these experiences. First, they were difficult, but Paul set an example of endurance. He didn't give up. But second, and I think more importantly, from them all, the Lord rescued him. God was faithful at those times, and Timothy was there to see it. And now in his letter, Paul is not just reminding Timothy to follow in his example, he's also pointing beyond himself to the very source of power that he lived by and that Timothy is going to need to live by. Our goal when we're learning from others or when we're discipling others 
should always be, by God's grace, to be able to say, like Paul did in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Imitate not my own skill set, but imitate my dependence on Christ. So Paul is delighted to say that because Timothy has followed, this has been observed, past tense, he has followed, he's on the right path. And the next point that we're going to see is continue. Continue. There's still plenty of progress left to be made. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Continue not off into new things necessarily, but in what you have already believed. There's a real sense here in that Timothy's commanded to continue is a command to grow deeper in what he's believed, not necessarily broader. The way forward is going to involve being strengthened in the way that you have already begun. Paul reminds Timothy of the way his, his mother and his grandmother brought him up on the Hebrew Scriptures. And Paul wants Timothy to remember it's in the Holy Scriptures that have provided the foundation for Timothy's belief. And that's, that's what has taught him to have faith in Jesus Christ. And I think there's an important lesson out there for, for parents. Not only must we teach our children the Bible, but we also need to have an end goal of eventually having the Bible replace us as the authority that our children rely on and learn from. If we don't eventually do that, then children grow up and they start to reason to themselves, well, I'm only a Christian because my parents are a Christian, and if my parents believe something else, then maybe I would believe something else. In the, in the end, it's not the faith of the parents that can guarantee faith in the children because it's not the parents who are ultimately able to make one wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. What can do that? The scriptures can do that. God's word is valuable beyond measure. It gives sight to the blind. It gives understanding to the foolish. But in the end, what this book is able to do, far more than just give some answers to important questions or shine light in the darkness or give wise principles to live by, it can do all those things, and it does all of those things. But the most valuable and precious thing that God's revelation does for us is it is able to make you wise for salvation. You can devote your life to searching for answers and picking this book apart and analyzing it and memorizing portions of it and somehow still tragically miss the message that it is written to give us, to miss the main purpose of this revelation. And Jesus warned some people in John 5. He said, listen to his words. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness about me. There were devout, religious-minded people who were searching and seeking for eternal life in this book, but they did not find it because when this book led them to Jesus, they rejected him. What does it mean that the scriptures can make us wise to salvation by faith in Christ Jesus? It means that God's word lays bare before our eyes the truth about our need for God. It shows us how our sin makes us spiritually blind. And when God's light shines, shines in the word and opens up our eyes, to understand God's plan of salvation. It makes us wise. It shows us that our selfish pride will not naturally acknowledge 
that sin has made us unable to stand before a holy God. That our efforts to gain holiness, to earn eternal life, to gain favor from God, cannot ever be enough. That the fair and just and right consequence of our sin is death, eternal death, and that acting out of grace and mercy, God has provided the only sacrifice that could ever make atonement for our sin and restore us to him. The scriptures are able to make us wise to this. They can bring us to the point where we see and know that only God's gracious provision in Christ can save us. And if we miss that, if we miss him, then all our knowledge of the scriptures will not count in our favor. I'll never forget the time when I became wise, to use this wording, to salvation through faith in Jesus Up until then, the idea that Jesus had died for the sins of the world was this kind of academic thought bubble, just just out here, separate from me. Well, that sounds really nice. That's a great story that Jesus died for the sins of the world. I sure hope that the world thanks him for it, but I didn't realize it had anything to do with me. And then all at once, under the teaching of the scriptures, I saw it from God's perspective. I saw that not only for the sins of the world out there did Jesus go to the cross, But for my sins, Jesus went to the cross. For my own salvation, that without him I was lost. And that incredible act of love was given not just to make a pleasing philosophical point or a great point in an argument, but because I myself had no hope apart from Jesus. And I believed at once what God had done in Christ's death and resurrection had saved me. If you're here and you've accumulated a wealth of knowledge in the scriptures, but you have not yet trusted in Christ, then you must know that salvation does not consist in the knowledge alone, but this knowledge leads lost sinners to salvation through faith in Christ. If you're someone who's seeking after answers and you're interested in what Christianity has to offer, you must know that sooner or later, the scriptures will bring you to Jesus Christ himself. And then either your heart is humbled to the place where you call him master and savior and say, Lord, save me, or else your pride makes an excuse and it keeps you from doing that. Jesus has always been and remains a patient shepherd of sinful hearts, but he is also the light of truth, revealing what is true about us, even when we may not want to see it. If you're here and like Timothy in our passage, you are certain of what you have believed, then there is a special kind of encouragement for you today from this passage, because we are here reminded that the way to continue forward is not a different way from the way that we were saved. Jesus continues to be the one that we need. He continues to save us and teach us. He's still the reason that we should be growing in our knowledge of the scriptures. He's why we study the Bible. He's why we listen to it preached and taught. Because in the word of God, we encounter Jesus in all of his richness and his beauty and his mercy and his grace. If Bible studies or sermons have become boring to you, then maybe ask yourself, have I been coming to them expecting something other than to find Jesus? Am I letting the scriptures show me more of Christ? Because if you come to them with that expectation, you will not be disappointed and you will not be bored. A passage like this, uh, 
reminds us, it kind of helps, needs to point out for us that, that the words of the Old Testament are just as able to reveal Christ to us as, as, just as much as the New Testament can. And I want to leave you with, this uh, is just a little side note, but a little interpretive question that you can tuck in your pocket and write down and pull out and use when you come to those Old Testament passages that are just really hard. Like you wonder why God is, is this uh, in my reading this morning. Try asking the question, okay, what did the people who originally heard this, that this word was spoken to, what did they need? What did they need? What was the response God was hoping this word would produce in them? And then once you have an answer to that question and you have a handle on that, ask, did God's actions in Jesus Christ meet that need? You might be surprised how often once you discover the needs of the people God was speaking to, that you discover your own needs, what they are, and how God has met them in Christ. But we need to keep moving, and, uh, and as we do that, we want to ask a question right now. We've established that the scriptures are able to make us wise to salvation in Christ. And the question that we want to ask now is, how is scripture able to do this? How is the Bible able to do what no other teaching and no other scripture or text or great book or lovely talk can can do how is scripture able to do this and the answer comes in the opening words of verse 16 all scripture is breathed out by god this book 66 books actually that make up the bible this book has been spoken by god it's god's word i can't humanly convince you of that this morning especially not from this passage, because there's no argument or proof in verse 16. It's just a statement. It's a statement because it's written to Timothy, and Timothy has been convinced of this fact beyond a shadow of a doubt. All Scripture is God's Word. It's important to know that the Scriptures consider themselves to be God's Word. Scripture makes this claim. If you come to the Bible hoping to glean some wisdom and some useful life tips and kind of take what you can use and reject what you can't, that you have a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is you're trying to learn from. The Word of God makes no mistake about claiming to be the Word of God. We see that same kind of mistake and approach in the way the world wants to grant Jesus this reputation as a great teacher and someone who can be learned from, just like lots of other wise teachers can be learned from. Jesus does not offer wisdom for life a la carte or buffet-style or on the side. And anyone who thinks he does has not really listened to the words that Jesus spoke. Wise and humble human teachers are not supposed to say things like, unless you eat my blood, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Wise and humble teachers can't say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's been famously argued by C.S. Lewis that any normal human being who says those things and makes those claims is either crazy or evil. He's not a good teacher. Or he is actually who he claims to be. He is the Son of God in the flesh. What Jesus taught always pointed people towards belief in who he was and what he would do on their behalf as God's Son and as the Savior who saves sinners. It makes no sense to believe in any of what Jesus said if you don't ultimately follow what he has taught to his conclusions about who he is. And it goes the same way with the Bible. Whatever anyone might choose to believe about this book and what it teaches, you cannot escape the fact that the Bible 
claims about itself that it is the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 maybe gets, maybe gets sometimes too much attention on the debate over how the inspiration of Scripture works. Now, for believers, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, this is a particularly wonderful way of expressing what we have come to understand is true about Scripture, that Scripture is breathed out by God. That these words have an ultimate source behind them, that even though it came through men, it did not come from men. That the same God who spoke into the darkness and created light, that the very voice which created all things out of nothing, that the same breath that breathed life into Adam's bones has breathed out these words. That right there is the answer to the question we asked a little while back. How is it possible that these scriptures can do what nothing else can do? Make lost sinners wise to salvation in Christ. Because they come from outside of us. They are living and active. The Bible is the very word of God. That's how Christians should read 2 Timothy 3.16. It's beautiful. But we get confused when we take this verse to a skeptic. Uh, and trying to prove that the Bible is God's word, and then we get maybe no response from them. And the reason is because there's no proof in the text. It's just a, it's a simple statement. Either you believe it or you don't. And as a statement, the Bible is the word of God. This verse is not unique in Scripture. Uh, the Bible always considers itself to be God's word. It's really obvious. On every page, the claim is always there. It's always implicit. It's not only one little proof text that tells us the Bible is God's word. If somehow God had seen fit to omit, omit these words in verse 16, that would be like removing one single mountaintop out of the Rocky Mountain range and thinking that you don't have a mountain range anymore. Every page of Scripture believes and claims to be God's Word. The first five books of the Bible, the Torah or the Pentateuch, claims at least 680 times that it's God who's speaking. The rest of the history books, you add about another 400 more explicit claims that it's God who's speaking. In the poetic books, hundreds more. In the prophetic books, probably 1,300. Maybe the people who were counting lost count, but they came up with 1,300 times that this directly claims, hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, thus saith the Lord over and over again. And the New Testament alludes back to the Old Testament so often it's impossible to cover every time. But if we take just the direct quotes that the New Testament is directly quoting the Old Testament, there's over 300 times, and each and every time, it's with the assumption that this is the Word of God and nothing else that's being quoted. And many of those times come from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. So Scripture believes it is the Word of God. And whatever you believe about it, you need to take into account that the Bible claims to be nothing other than God's Word. It's dishonest to brush that claim aside. Obviously, believing this requires a certain measure of faith. But faith doesn't come from nowhere. Actually, actually, faith comes from the hearing of the Word of God. Uh, but, it's, but it doesn't require a blind faith to believe the Bible's truth claims. There are plenty of reasons, which we can't get into today, but just to give you some, some categories of some thoughts of lines to pursue, um, you, know, you can look at the way the New Testament church interacted with the world around it. Uh, there's no other explanation for, for what that New Testament church did. You could study the immense number of prophecies that are made and fulfilled precisely from Scripture, especially the ones made in the Old Testament about who Jesus would be and what he would fulfill. 
that'll give you great confidence in the Bible's truth claims. In another way, in a more subjective way, you could look and examine at the lives of people who have been changed by God's Word. You can look at evidence there, a change that can't be explained any other way. Or you could consider the words of Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. When I am honest, the Word of God is always out ahead of me. I don't master it. It masters me, and it knows more about me than I know about myself every time I come to it. But regardless about what you think about the Bible, what the Bible claims about itself is that it is the very Word of God. And we need to reckon with that when we come to it. And it's that assumption that Paul uses here to frame the final point that we're going to look at today. And that is this. Because Scripture is God-breathed, because it is, it is therefore profitable. It is useful. It makes a difference. It is food without which man cannot live. It is light without which we are left in darkness. It brings life and it brings change and it brings hope from outside our situation. Verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, as a preacher or as a teacher, I read those verses, and right away, the wheels start turning, and I think something like this. Yeah, I can preach that. That'll preach. God's people need to hear that. The people that I know and love and care for need to be taught and reproved and corrected and trained in righteousness. So let's go. But then comes the very next phrase. That the man of God may be complete. Some translations have taken that little phrase, man of God, and they've sort of smoothed it out with gender-neutral language, and they've said maybe the servant of God may be complete, or that the people of God may be complete. But this is a case where when we do that, we actually lose something of value that the text is communicating to us. It's not that this doesn't apply to women in the church as well as to men. It's that the phrase, man of God, tells us something that we miss if we change it. It's a very specific set of words in a very specific order that actually, it's a direct quote many, many times in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, this phrase, man of God, functions as a job title. Uh, From Moses all the way down through the whole line of prophets, this phrase, man of God, is used of them. And it's a job description. It's the man of God is someone who has been entrusted with God's word, and it's his job to take it to others. Uh, He's a messenger on God's behalf. And I think that Paul uses it of Timothy here because he wants to highlight a relationship between the man of God and the word of God. And the relationship is this. The man of God is himself underneath the word of God. To put it a different way, it is submitting to the word of God that makes a man of God, that makes him fit to carry out his task of sharing the word with others. And taken this way, these verses apply 
first in a special way to anyone who is responsible for teaching God's word to other people. And then after that, it also applies to each one of us in the body of Christ, who each one of us should be serving God by witnessing and telling his word to others. In verse 17, the the ESV, which we read from, says that the man of God may be made complete. The King James has a slightly optimistic perfect there, that the man of God may be made perfect. But I think that the NASB chooses the right nuance to this word when it says that the man of God may be adequate. Adequate. It's not as exciting as perfect or complete, but I think it's the sense of the word. What makes a servant of God fit or adequate, it's like a pass-fail. What makes you fit, what makes you pass inspection and useful for this job of taking God's word to others is this that you are submitting to God's word yourself. You are being taught and reproved and corrected and trained in righteousness from God's word. And that equips you and makes you ready to go out and do what God will have you do in others' lives. It's very fitting that these words come to Timothy immediately before the very famous charge in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the word. Preach the word. That's where we'll be next week. But before Timothy gets told to preach the word, he's reminded the word of God makes you equipped. Do you ever hear yourself say things like, oh, I could never do that. I'm not good enough to do that. I'm not equipped to do that. Well, here is God's plan to help you realize I am equipped and ready for the situation God has put me in. I'm ready for this. I'm fit and adequate for the challenge that is before me if I am listening to God's word and responding to it. If I'm listening to God's word and being convicted by it and being trained in how I think and how I live, then I'm trusting him. And I'm wise in salvation in Christ Jesus. And Jesus is before my eyes and I'm obeying him. Then I'm ready for whatever God asks me to do next. Are you listening to God's word and responding to it? Do you let it shape the way that you think? The word of God is profitable for teaching and reproving. Those are the first two. Teaching reveals to us what is true. Reproving reveals to us the areas where we have gone after and believed and let our minds be shaped into things that are not true. We need both sides. We need God's God's word to show us what's true. It can do that like nothing else can. We also need it to tear down the things that we believed when we bought into a lie. Do you let the Bible shape the way you live? Those are the next two words that show up in. The word that's used for correction carries the idea of straightening something out that's been bent bent out of shape. Like something that's not useful anymore because it's been bent. This word means fixing that, putting it back in working order the way it was meant to be. Our lives are like that. Do you ever wonder why your life just seems broken and you don't seem to be able to change? Why living out habits that are in line with God's truth is hard stuff to do? Will you commit to spending time in God's word and then submitting to it and letting it train you and straighten out your life and train you in righteousness in ways that you cannot train yourself? Don't listen to what the Bible says and assume that everyone else needs to hear that except you. Jesus may may have said something about dealing with the log in your own eye before being concerned about the speck in someone else's eye. You know when the cabin pressure changes in the airplane? And those oxygen masks drop down. None of us have ever been in that situation. Put up your hand if you've actually been in that situation. Have you seen the oxygen mask drop down? One. 
one. But we all know what to do, don't we? When those masks come down, you put your own mask on first before you assist the person next to you. You put the, you put the mask on yourself first because you need it before you are able to help other people. That's what's being said about being a servant of God here. If you don't see the word of God as profitable for you, then you are the one who needs it the most. Not any of the other people on your list to straighten out. This is where I want to leave us today. With the reminder that the Bible is actually God's word, breathed out by him, and because of that, it is able to make changes in your life from the outside that you could not produce on your own. Only the Spirit of God working through the Word of God can make someone wise to salvation in Jesus Christ. This is where we come to see more of Jesus. And Jesus himself promised that it was the Word and the truth of God that would set sinners free and make them holy. He prayed this way for us in John 17. He prayed to the Father, thinking of us, and he said, Sanctify them. Set them apart for holy service to you, Father, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we come to you in the name of Jesus. That we come to you and when we, when we hear from you in your word and we are brought under conviction of the areas where our life does not measure up to your holy standard, we thank you that we come in Jesus' name and we know that when you bring us under conviction and we come to you and we confess our sins and repent of them and, and we ask to be forgiven, we know that Jesus is just and faithful to cleanse us and forgive us of those sins. We thank you that everyone here who knows Jesus and trusts him, who is wise to salvation because of what your word has done, we thank you for the reminder today that we need Jesus every bit as much today as we did when we first came to him. And I ask that you will help us as your people to continue in what we have believed. Father, we pray for those, uh, for those here and for our loved ones and for those who are, who are today hearing the word of God in churches all across the world. We pray that your word will make sinners wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We ask that as people hear your word, your spirit will be living and active. Your word will cut to the quick and it will help them to see that only what you have provided in Christ can make us right and that what you have provided in Christ is everything we could possibly need. I pray that you will refine us as your people to teach us to, be, to not be hypocrites but to come to your word expecting first and foremost to be worked on ourselves. We ask this in the sufficient and perfect name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.